So Daniel chapter 11, we're going to finish off our last section of Daniel chapter 11 here, and uh, and then we'll get to chapter 12 starting next week. Um, There's a bit of a break in the chapter here, and that's why I I stopped where I did last time. We were looking at uh, fulfilled prophecies, uh, Daniel chapter 11, 1 to 35, and... um, it's interesting because I thought about this. I thought about the prophecies that were given uh, at the early part of uh, chapter 11, the Syrian kings, the Egyptian kings, uh, all those different kind of things. And I was just thinking to myself, what benefit would, would it have been to those before it happened to have known that? And um, as far as the specific events, I don't think there's really any benefit uh, that they would have actually gleaned from knowing what was going to happen. So what I'm thinking is this. The Lord gave us those passages, not for the sake of those that were before, but for the sake of those that are after. And so that we can look back and, and have our faith built in the fact that how good God is and how accurate his word is. And I think it really is there for us uh, after the fact. I really believe that's what Daniel chapter 11 is about now, if they would have been very diligent, uh, maybe they could have picked that out as they were going through there, and uh, maybe they would have caught some of these things as they were uh, studying the scripture and seeing it play out uh, in the dynamics of the nations there, but I really don't think it would have really helped them, uh, you, know, uh, you know, maybe it would have in some way, but I really think that the, the greatest blessing of, of knowing those fulfilled prophecies is for those that are after the fact, looking back and understanding how great God is to give us such detail a uh, long time before it actually happened and to build our faith and put our faith in his word where we know that what God says is true and we can trust uh, not just the Old Testament prophecy, but we can trust everything he said all the way through the New Testament, all the way through to the end of the book of Revelation because it is the inspired word of God, amen? And so Daniel chapter 11, verse number 36, I'm gonna read down to verse number 45. It says, and the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god, and shall speak marvelous things against the god of gods, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished. For that that is determined shall be done. Neither shall he regard the god of his fathers, nor the desire of women, nor regard any god, for he shall magnify himself above all. But in his estate shall he honor the god of forces, And the God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver and with precious stones and pleasant things. Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory. And he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. And at the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind with chariots and with horsemen and with many ships. He shall enter into the countries and shall overflow and pass over. He shall enter also into the glorious land and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand, even Edom and Moab and the chief of the uh, children of Ammon. He shall stretch forth his hand upon the countries and the land of Egypt shall not escape. But he shall have power over the treasures of gold and of silver and over all the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. But tidings of the east and out of the north shall trouble him, 
Therefore he shall go with great fury to destroy and utterly to make away many. And he shall plant the tabernacles of his palace between the seas and the glorious holy mountain. Yet he shall come to his end and none shall help him. Let's pray. Father, I just ask you, Lord, that you would just give me wisdom as we go through this passage. And Lord, that it would be practically helpful for us. And Lord, I just pray you just keep us alert as many are tired from working and uh, some have been sick. Uh, we pray for those that are at home that can't be here. We just pray you'd put a hedge about them. And I pray that the stream would be a blessing to those that can't make it tonight. Uh, I know the Cabalsas are not feeling well and others uh, are not feeling well. I just pray, Lord, you would just hedge them in and, and that they'd get something from this stream tonight. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, so now, starting in verse... 36, what's happening is the transition in this chapter. All the way to verse 35, we've been talking about these past kings, uh, the Ptolemies, the, the Egyptian kings, and then also the kings of the north, which are the Syrian kings. The last one we looked at was Antiochus Epiphanes. Remember the guy who gave himself his own name, Epiphanes, the glorious one? <laughs> you know? And uh, of course, that was many years ago. That was before actually uh, Christ came to earth. That was uh, in the intertestamental, in intertestamental period. So you say, well, why then is it, is it switching now? How do you know it's switching? Are we not talking about maybe another king that was just on the heels of him? Well, I think we need to understand what's happening here is, and I think the really big proof of that is, of course, the whole context of the passage. But mostly when you look here, it talks about at the, end, at the time of the end, shall the king of the south push at him. Who's that? The king of the Egyptians. Then it says, and the king of the north shall come against him. So we're not talking about Antiochus. We're not talking about the Ptolemies, the, the, the pharaohs, and so forth, because we have both of these kings on both sides actually attacking this particular king. So this king doesn't belong to Syria or to Egypt. Amen? And so what's happening is there's a shift. Now we're talking about the Antichrist. We're talking about the future week of Daniel, that 70th week of Daniel, and some of the things that are going to characterize his rule here. And so I just wanted you to know that before we start. And so uh, notice what it talks about. It says the time of the end. The end, it refers to the finish, a final point, a goal of time, a space, or a purpose. And so what we're doing now is we're zeroing in towards the end time. Now, we know after the Antichrist, there's still going to be much, a lot of things happening. There's an eternity of things happening after the Antichrist. But as far as the highway of prophecy in Scripture, we're getting very close to the end when we're looking at the Antichrist. Uh, when we're looking at right before the millennial reign of the Lord Jesus Christ, before the kingdom is set up. And so Antiochus was a type of the Antichrist, but now we're going to fast forward to the time of the end. We're going to see the very anti-type himself, the Antichrist, in this particular passage. And so, so we're shifting to the final week of Daniel's 70th prophecy, 70th week prophecy. This is also known as a tribulation or Jacob's trouble. We have this chart. It's a very simple one. I just use it just to show how the, the, the seven years, the tribulation years, or the Daniel 70th week is divided into two halves. You have the beginning of sorrows in Matthew 24, uh, 5 to 20, but then after, at the midpoint, you have a shift into what's called the great tribulation. And the great tribulation is the time where God's wrath will pour upon the earth as it was never done before. Now, his wrath will be pouring out through the whole seven years, but it's going to be very intense, and that lasts 
uh, the last three and a half years as the Antichrist will also rule for 42 months, that last half there. And so um, just to bring again to this other graphic that we have here, back here again, um, this is what we have. You see the cross. You see that that's during the, the church age. And then at the rapture, you're going to have the rise of the Antichrist. That's talking about the four horsemen, how that each one of those represent a different aspect of this coming Antichrist and what he's going to gain power in, economics and military and so forth. Each four of those is talking about one aspect of his power. And then by the beginning of the 70th week, the tribulation, he is going to sign at the bottom there. He'll confirm a covenant with Israel for one week. Now, you see in Daniel 9, verse 27, that's going to kick off the 70th week of Daniel. And so that is how it starts. It didn't start with the rapture. The rapture starts is before the 70th week. The 70th week begins or initiates with the confirmation of that covenant in Daniel chapter 9, verse number 27. So that's just, we need to know that. After that, we have the trumpet judgments, which take in the first half of the 70th week of Daniel and then in the middle, what you have is the rule. You can see the career of the Antichrist, the rise, the rule, and the ruin. And the rule will happen in the middle of the week, and that's when he will set up the abomination of desolation, and he'll require worship from people. And that's when the number 666 will come into play, and all that will happen in the middle. And of course, that will kick off the final vile judgments, which God will pour upon mankind, and also the great persecution that's going to happen uh, from the Antichrist against the children of Israel, anybody that will follow God because he's the one that wants to be God. And we'll look at that today. And so the Antichrist will reign 42 months. And then at the end of that seven-year period, we have the revelation of Christ from the rapture to the revelation. And the revelation when he comes down is going to be the ruin of the Antichrist. And he and the false prophet are cast into the lake of fire. And that will start the, the events that will begin the millennial the millennial kingdom, uh, the 1,000-year reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so that's just kind of in a nutshell there. That's also on your last page of your handout sheet. If you want to take that home and look at that, you can do that, all right? And so uh, Daniel 9.27 says, He shall confirm the covenant with many for one week, and in the midst of the week he shall cause the sacrifice and the oblation to cease, and for the overspreading of abominations he shall make it desolate, even unto the consummation, and that determined shall be poured upon the desolate. And so basically the Antichrist, this covenant that he's going to make is, is to reinstate the sacrifices of the Israel people. And that's what they've been asking for. And this Antichrist is going to give them that and say, I'm going to do this for you and I'm going to make this happen for you and I'll be your protector during this time. And, and of course, so they build the temple, they start sacrificing three and a half years into his seven-year uh, covenant, he breaks his covenant and he says, now you worship me. And he takes that temple and sets up himself as God and causes the sacrifices to cease. Because I can just imagine as he's seeing these sacrifices being made in Jerusalem, it's reminding him of who the true Christ is, the Lord Jesus Christ. And I'm sure that was eating at him because he is one prideful fellow. He is looking for worship. And as long as they're sacrificing, he's not getting worshiped. You know what I mean? So he stops the sacrificing, sets himself up as God. He says, now you worship me because he really is satanic in, in his very origin, this, this Antichrist. So number one, let's look at the selfish king, the Antichrist. Um, <clears throat> 
letter A, he is self-willed. We see that right there in Daniel chapter eleven thirty-six. And the king shall do according to his will. That means he will accomplish his own desires, his own pleasure. This isn't about him following any plan that a higher power is initiating. Like we would look at the Bible. We would look at God and say, I want to do the will of God. That is not his desire. He is doing his own thing. It's all about him. He cuts off authority on top of his head. He doesn't submit to nobody, but he wants everybody to submit to him. That, of course, is how a rebel operates as well, because that's satanic. Uh, a rebel always, they don't want to submit to anybody, but they want everybody to submit to them. <laughs> Amen? That's a, that's a characteristic of the Antichrist. And so, number one, the Antichrist is in complete opposition to God, this being revealed by self-will. Self-will is a, is a, is a re- revelation of your walk with God. If you are living a life of self-will, uh, the word in the Old Testament you would maybe use is the word iniquity. Uh, your iniquities have separated between you and your God. Uh, self-will means I'm going to do it my own way. I don't care what the scriptures say. I'm just going to make my own decision upon the way I feel or the way I think it's the right, right way to do it. Maybe the way my dad taught me, grandpa taught me, whoever. That is self-will. Self-will is, is wicked. Self-will is idolatry, the Bible says. It's, it's you be, make, becoming your own idol. You're, you're worshiping your own self as God, you know. Um, Isaiah 14, 14 says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will be like the Most High. This is talking about Lucifer. And so you notice that word, I will ascend. I will be like the Most High. It's always, I will, I will, I will. And so you know how, how much you're walking with God by how many times you say, I will or not. <laughs> Either it's got to be God's will or I will, but you can't have both. And you can't be a person that says, I will, and then pretend like God wills. Uh, you've got to be a person that, that is consecrated to the Lord and wants God's will for your life in all ways. Amen? And that's got to be our life. And if that's not what we are, we're just as bad as the Antichrist, really, when you think about it. And so number two, Jesus Christ would only please his Father. So in contrast to the Antichrist, the real Christ is much, much different. In John 8, 29, it says, And he that sent me is with me. The Father hath not left me alone, for I do always those things that please him. How many times does he do those things that please him? Always. And that's the example that he has set for us. He says, this is what I want you to do. I want you to live with the same philosophy, the same idea, to always do the things that please me and please my father. Amen. That is definitely anti-antichrist. Amen. And so opposite of what antichrist is. In Luke 22 verse 42 it says, saying, Father, if thou be willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. He's laying for us here a philosophy of life that each one of us have to adopt and put into our lifestyle. We have to say, you know what, Lord, I don't really necessarily like what's going on here. This is hurtful, and my family's hurting, or whatever, our church is hurting, or this is hurting, or uh, this isn't easy, this isn't nice, this isn't something I want to experience. But Lord, if you want me to experience this, I want to let you know that I'm willing to. I'm willing to go through this if this is your will for my life, because I trust you and what you're doing with this trial in my life. Amen? And so that's a philosophy that we have to adopt, and that comes straight from the Lord Jesus Christ. Definitely not the Antichrist. In Psalm 40, verse 8, it also says, I delight to do thy will, O my God, yea, thy law is within my heart. And so here we have another aspect of this desire 
to do the will of God. If you're truly one that wants to do the will of God, you're also a person that spends time in the Bible. If you're not a person that's spending time in the Word of God, you really don't care about God's will. You're living for your will, but maybe it sounds good for me to talk about God a little bit and have a couple of verses that I throw out there, but we're talking about living our life daily after the Lord's will. That means you have to daily seek for God's direction from His Word, amen? You need to know what God says about every aspect of your life. There ought not, ought not be anything you ever do that you have not measured it according to the word of God. That is the, the aspect of Christ. That's how he operated. That's how he uh, lived his, his life before his father. That's how he wants us to live our life. And of course, that's completely opposite of how the Antichrist lived his life, amen, or is going to live his life because it's all about I will do what pleases me. But it's unreal, folks. That's very normal for the world. You're wondering how easy it would be for, for the Antichrist to set up shop here on this earth. Very easy. Because you got most of humanity willing to take on that same philosophy. I will do what I want to do. I don't care what you say about it. You know, that's Antichrist. And that's what he's going to promote. And anybody that likes that, that philosophy will worship him. You know, it's a sad thing, but it's true. Number three, all of creation, especially mankind, was created to please God. In Revelation 4, verse 11, it says, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power, for thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are and were created. And so you're not created for anything other than to please God with your life. That's why you are on this. That's why you're breathing tonight. You're breathing tonight because he made you to please him. And if that's not a part of your life, I'm sorry, you are not fulfilling your very purpose of why you got breath in your body. Amen? Yeah. And so we have to live that way. You have to ask yourself, am I truly pleasing God with my life? Do I really care whether I'm pleasing God? Well, how am I going to do that? Well, the Bible says, for without faith, it's impossible to please him. It's impossible. Without faith, without believing the word of God, without taking steps of faith in obedience to the scripture, you're not pleasing God at all. You know, and so we have to adopt this because it's, it's what God created us necessarily to be. In Matthew 6, verse 10, it says, Thy kingdom come, thy will be done in earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus Christ has given us this, this pattern prayer for us to pray. He says, this is how you got to pray. You got to look up to heaven and say, whatever it is you want done up there, I want that to be fleshed out down here. That ought to be the very core of our existence is to believe that. And boy, I tell you, that would, that would really solve 99% of your problems right there. Just doing what God wants you to do on this earth. Get yourself out of the way. Pull yourself out of it. Because you know what? Your way is bringing you down to some very bad things in the future. You will not be blessed. You are going to continue to go down and continue to backslide until either God chastises you to get you back on track or God just takes you home and says, you know what, I'm done with this, <laughs> you know? So let's make sure we give ourselves to the will of God and our purpose in pleasing him. Let her be self-exalted and the king shall do according to his will and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every God. So exalt means to raise or to lift up, to be exalted. It indicates that something is literally raised up high. And so he is putting himself high. You know, we do this in, in minor ways sometimes. Satan's going to do this in a global way. He's going to do this that, or, or the Antichrist is going to do this in a way where everybody on earth will see him that he has lifted himself up. 
Now, none of us have necessarily done that to that extent, but many of us do that in smaller ways where we do that maybe on the job site. We exalt ourselves, we lift ourselves up in our families or around our friends or whatever. Uh, we got to be careful those those thoughts and that self-exaltation that's not right. Second Thessalonians 2, 4 says, Whoso opposeth and exalteth himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped, so that he is God, sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. And so, wow, you think, what pride this guy must have. What deception must be in his mind that he thinks that this is somehow going to work, you know? You think in all of this, all of his power that he has, he's not lasting more than 42 months like that, and God shuts him down. Man, I'll tell you something. What if I said you only had three and a half years to live your self-exalting life, <laughs> you know? You say, okay, Lord, I want to humble myself. Uh, you know what? I think humility does bring us a little bit longer down the road. I think God does give us a longer life. That's why the Bible talks about children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right, that it may be well with you, and thou mayest live long on the earth. Amen? But when we start living that self-exalting life, he cuts us short, just like he did the Antichrist. No matter how much power he had, military, wealth, uh, political, the Lord says, none of that stuff stopped. I mean, you're coming down. It's already been prophesied. It's all over, you know? And so letter C, self-magnified. And the king shall do according to his will, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god and shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods. So the kings of the past would consider themselves gods, but rarely would consider themselves greater than all the gods because they would be speaking against their own predecessors, their, especially in the Roman religion. Every Nero every, or every uh, emperor at some point when he dies is brought to a place of deification where they actually even build him a temple and they go in and pray to him like he's God. Uh, every, every emperor was like that. Nero and, and Constantine, even the one that created the Roman Catholic Church, he was, he was deified. So people prayed to him as God. And so it's amazing, you know, because in all of that, they all allowed themselves to be exalted or magnified as God, but I, I don't see any of them saying that I'm above all the gods because none of them had the courage to say, hey, don't think about any of those gods before us. Because, I mean, this is tradition, man. We're talking, we're, we're talking centuries of, of God worship here. We're talking of all these different Zeus and all these different people that they've been worshiping for generations and generations. And now you're going to stand up and say, hey, they're nothing. I'm the only God. You never see that. Throughout all the bad rulers of the world, you never see that. You see them try to maintain somewhat of a relationship with their past gods, even though they made themselves a god in the eyes of the people which the Roman emperors did. But this one is going far beyond and magnifying himself, himself as the only God, the only God, and wiping out the whole past of all these people and saying, whatever you got, whatever temple you worship, I'm sorry, it has nothing to do with anything. It's all done. I'm the only one you'll worship. That's pretty amazing when you think about it. So magnify means to become great, or to make great, to grow up, or to promote. And so he promoted himself, and we know the Bible says you can't promote yourself. Promote, promotion cometh not from the east or the west, but from the Lord, the Bible says. Amen. And so you can never promote yourself. Second Samuel 7.22, this same word, it says, Wherefore thou art great 
O Lord God, for there is none like thee, neither is there any God beside thee, according to all that we have heard with our ears. And the one thing about God, Jehovah God, the Lord Jesus Christ is this. You're not worshiping him just because he says, worship me. You're worshiping him because he proves to you that he is worthy of your worship. But with the Antichrist, not so. He's never proved it. He never will prove it, but he's still going to demand it. You think about that. Amen? Isn't that interesting? So even when you see this in 2 Samuel where it talks about God, wherefore thou art great, you got somebody else saying to God, you are great. Did I miss something here? It's not... Oh, some of you have an email, okay. <laughs> you got to tell me this thing, son. <laughs> In Psalm 34, verse 3, it says, Oh, magnify the Lord with me and let us exalt his name together. Amen. Yeah. You know, it, and so we as people see the, the, uh, the value in exalting the name of God because we see what he has done for us. We see in his works, in his character, and everything that he is, that he is well worth our worship, and our magnification. Amen? But the Antichrist has never, you know, done a thing to earn it. It's just self-magnification uh, that we do. You know, many times, well, I'm better than you at this. Well, if you're better than them at that, everybody would know it. <laughs> Amen? Well, I'm a better worker than you. If you've got to tell everybody you're the better worker, then chances are you're not. Because if you're the best worker, then everybody would know it. Yeah. And if you've got to try to convince them, Amen? Someone once said, if you've got to keep reminding people you're the pastor, you're probably not. <laughs> Somebody else is pastoring. See, folks, we just got to become, we just got to become uh, you know, comfortable in where we are and what God has made us to be. We don't have to exalt ourselves or magnify ourselves. Amen. So only the Lord should be magnified by our praise and our thanksgiving. Um, and it's easy to find reasons to magnify him, but you can't find one with the Antichrist. He's really a good for nothing, you know. Number one, he will speak against the true God. Daniel 11, verse 36, it goes on to say, and he shall speak marvelous things against the God of gods. That means he's going to say such outlandish things, it'll be like marvelous. Like, what? What did he just say? What did he just say about the God that we've learned about our whole life? It's going to be so out there. And he's going to attack him in such a way. Now, this is very indicative as well of those that are living in rebellion and those that are magnifying themselves. A person that magnifies themselves knows that they don't have what it takes to deliver what they're saying they really are. And so one of the tactics in this situation is what they begin to do is tear down others. See, if I'm as great as I think I am, then I don't need to tear anybody down. But if I'm tearing somebody down, then I'm not really too convinced that I'm that great. <laughs> Amen? Because i got to bring other people down to my level in order to make myself look better. Now, if that's a tactic that I'm implementing in my life for whatever reason, you've just admitted your guilt. You've admitted how bad you are. You've admitted that you are a very characteristic of the Antichrist and magnifying self instead of magnifying the Lord. And so whatever he'll say will be a marvelous statement against the God of the Bible and the atmosphere of this society will be conducive to this kind of talk. I mean, they love it when you talk against the Bible and talk, you know, I was looking at one video today where this, uh, I think these couple of Muslim guys were, were targeting Christians and taking the Bible and trying to show them contradictions in the scripture, trying to destroy their faith in the scripture. Now, folks, the last person on earth that could ever, should ever talk about 
perfect scripture is a Muslim. There's parts of the Muslim Bible that have actually been eaten by a goat. And you know what? They don't, they'll never be able to recover that. Uh, in the scripture, when we had a passage of scripture that was destroyed, remember when, when uh, Jeremiah wrote those passages and the king cut it up and burnt it? <laughs> God gave it back to him in perfect and actually adding to it the inspired word of God. But there, there's parts, and they'll even admit to this, there's parts of the, the, the Quran that were eaten by a goat and could never be replaced. <laughs> so, folks, they're the last ones that should be talking about the preservation of Scripture. And by the way, there are no contradictions in the Bible. And be careful about listening to garbage like that. Because when they first present it, they'll say, oh, why is this age different than that age? And, of course, you won't know because you're working from a position of ignorance. You've never done a study in it. You never looked at the truth. But I'll tell you something. We've got to have some presuppositions in life. You know what my presupposition is? That I believe we've got a perfect word of God. So that's where I start from. I don't start from, well, maybe there's error. Because if I start from that position, well, now maybe the devil will mess with my head. So I have to start with a solid foundation. We call that presuppositions. And my presupposition is that I've got a perfect Bible. I would not change one word of this book. And I've heard people mention that, little, little things. Well, that would be a better. No, it's not. You're wrong. It was the right word. We have the right words in this book. This King James Bible, I wouldn't change one word. Well, what about this word? And you know what? You may think that word is wrong, but that's because of your lack of understanding, not because of God's error. And so the first presupposition you need to have is this, that God's word is perfect and you're not. So why don't you start first with maybe it's a problem with my understanding, not with the word of God. And the reason why we don't start there is, is because we're too stinking proud because we think that we know more than we actually know. Now we're putting ourselves on par with the word of God. Well, you might as well put a pope hat on you and you can go run a church. Speak at, at cathedral. You know what I mean? And so be careful about stuff like that, folks. I don't talk like that. There's never a time I'll ever put doubt on the word of God to any person in this room. That, that is Genesis chapter 3, yea hath God said. And I'm sorry, you may be doing it all with your good intentions, but you are wrong. You're dead wrong and you're taking the wrong side of this equation. There is either... Yea, hath God said, or there is thus saith the Lord. The prophets always said, thus saith the Lord. The yeah. devil always says, yea, hath God said. You just check what you just said. Which side do you fall on? Yeah, I've tried very hard always to fall on the thus saith the Lord side, even as foolish as it made me look in the eyes of some intellectuals. I really don't care. Because when I stand before God, I'm not going to have too much faith for God. He's not going to say, oh, you should have put more trust in your intellectualism. He's going to say, you had far too much faith in yourself and not near enough faith in the fact that what I said was true and even though you didn't understand it, it still was true. And you should have believed it just because I am God and you're not. Amen? Amen. That's a position to start from with your Bible. (laughs) Then let them come and try to trip you up. And you can even say, hey, I don't know the difference, but all I know is it's God's word and that's the right thing. Whether Azahiah was 22 or 42, all I know is they're both right. Whoa, (laughs) you're too smart. There's a reason why it's 42 and 22. 
Especially when you look at where they're written in the scripture in the Chronicles and the Kings. The perspective is from different sides, from the, from the reign of, of Ahab to his, actually his age, which was 22 years old. And 42 years old was how old the, the, lining, the line from Omri was to the time he started to rule. But you know what some new perversions have done, new Bibles? Because they thought there was error, they changed the 42 to 22 in their translations. The ESV did that. If you look at it, it says 22 in both. Because, I, well, this is a discrepancy. Well, if that's where your faith comes from, I surely don't want the Bible that you've been messing with. You understand? we got to come with people that believe the word of God today. And you say, well, people are going to think I'm still, I'd rather them think that I'm the foolish person because I just believe God. And, you know, when I meet God, he's not going to look me square in the eye and say, oh, you just believe me too much. That's the one thing he will never rebuke is your faith in him. But he will rebuke your smarts. He will rebuke your intellect. You say, you thought you were something. He says, I'm not like you. (laughs) My thoughts are not your thoughts, and my ways are not your ways. And those little contradictions you thought were contradictions, I put them in there to prove who you were. That's why anybody that changes those things in their new translation, that's who they are. And I want nothing to do with it. Amen. Just give me something that believes God. Anyways, let's move on. Let's go. Uh, number two, he will prosper for a time, it says here, and shall prosper till the indignation be accomplished, for that is determined shall be done. Uh, letter A, the Lord allows a time of prosperity for the wicked. In Jeremiah 12, verse 1, it says, Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgment. So, now, number one, Jeremiah here, he's gone through a hard time. I mean, <laughs> you talk about a prophet. I really don't know if I want to trade spots with Jeremiah ever. He went through stuff that I just really don't want to go through, you know, especially not having one convert from his whole ministry. Righteous art thou, O Lord, when I plead with thee, yet let me talk with thee of thy judgments. Something I don't understand here, God. Wherefore doth the way of the wicked prosper? Wherefore are they, are they happy that deal very treacherously? He's saying, God, I don't get this. Why is it that we're suffering here? And the psalmist says, I feel like I'm being chastised every morning. <laughs> Amen. The people of God feel like getting beat up every day. And here these wicked people are just happy and smiling and having a good old time. Lord, I don't get this. Prosper means to rush, to break forth, to come mightily, to succeed. And it seems that these wicked people are succeeding. They're actually breaking forth. They're the ones having the victory and, and, and the success in life. It's very real that the wicked do seem to prosper in this world longer than we think they should. And then they should just be glad I'm not God because if I'd see them crack a smile, I'd say, zap, <laughs> you know what I mean? But God doesn't do that. He lets them continue in their prosperity even though they're living wickedly. Jeremiah was stumbled by this truth. And he was disgusted at the happy, happiness of these wicked people. Letter B, the Lord will bring his indignation upon the wicked. That's what we can learn here. It says, till the indignation be accomplished. What's the indignation? That means intense anger, denunciation, or curse. Now, all I know is this. I may be chastised every morning, and the Lord may be whooping up on me every day, but all I know is this. 
there is no indignation against this fellow. I am not going to live underneath that indignation for one second of my life. And as happy as these wicked people think they are, the indignation is coming. The anger is there. The intense curse will fall. And that's something we got to keep in mind. And that's something Jeremiah had to sort out as well. In Psalm 69, verse 24, it says, Pour out thine indignation upon them and let thy wrathful anger take hold of them. That's what he's talking about, wrathful anger. Isaiah 10, 25. For yet a very little while and the indignation shall cease and mine anger in their destruction. That means the indignation will stop when he deals with the wicked. It says, For the indignation of the Lord is upon all nations and his fury upon all their armies. He hath utterly destroyed them. He hath delivered them to the slaughter. Now, I don't know about you, but if it means a little bit of happiness before this time, I still wouldn't change spaces with them. I'd get whooped up every day by God and go through all the trials I have to. Because all I know is in that time of indignation, I'm not the one that's going to be utterly destroyed. Amen? And of course, Jeremiah makes this statement in Jeremiah 10, 10. But the Lord is the true God. He is a living God and an everlasting king. At his wrath, the earth shall tremble and the nations shall not be able to abide his indignation. So he got it straight. He got it. He knew. He understood it. He began to put together the pieces of why it is that he's going through what he's going through and seeing what he's seeing with the wicked people. Daniel 8, 19, he said, Behold, I will make thee know what, the, what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed the end shall be. Zephaniah 3, 8, Therefore wait ye upon me, saith the Lord, until the day that I rise up to the prey, for my determination is to gather the nations that I may assemble the kingdoms, to pour upon them mine indignation, even all my fierce anger, for all the earth shall be devoured with the fire of my jealousy. So there's a plan working out here where the Lord is, is manipulating the situation where he's bringing all these armies to a singular spot where he's going to deal with them in one moment of time. Yeah. That's what he says here. Revelation 14, 9. And the third angel followed them, saying with a loud voice, If any man worship the beast in his image and receive his mark in his forehead or in his hand, the same shall drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is poured out without mixture into the cup of, into the cup of his indignation. And he shall be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Why did these people take that number? Why did they, why did they give in to this government pressure? and to worship the beast. Well, without it, they wouldn't be able to buy and sell. Without it, they wouldn't be able to live free. You know what I mean? I still wouldn't exchange it. Many Christians would end up in jail at the time these people are buying food and having a great old time. Why do the wicked prosper, Lord? He says, don't think they're prospering. The time of their indignation will come. That means if they've had a part of this, they will drink the wine of the wrath of God. Well, then I'll just be happy with my portion here, Lord, and what you've determined upon my life. Amen. So let us see. Whatever the Lord determines will be completed. Jeremiah 12, 14 says here, Thus saith the Lord against all mine evil neighbors that touch the inheritance which I have caused my people Israel to inherit, Behold, I will pluck them out of their land and pluck out the house of Judah from among them. 
It shall come to pass that after I have plucked them out, I will return and have compassion on them, and I will bring them again, every man to his heritage and every man to his land. Amen? So Jeremiah did put the pieces together. In fact, this is the, the end to that question. Why do the wicked prosper? He says, well, the day is going to come, the Lord is going to bring us back, and he will show compassion upon us. Amen? Daniel eleven thirty seven. 37. Uh, no, let's move on. Number three, uh, he will disregard the God of his fathers. Is that number three for you? Okay. He'll have no regard for ancestral religion. We talked about this already. It's a common phrase for the Jews in reference to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God of our fathers. He says, I have, he'll have no regard for that. He doesn't care about any Jew talking about the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He'll disregard the desire of women. This is kind of a complicated thought. You know, you hear a bunch of people say a whole bunch of things about this. I came up with at least four different interpretations of what people thought this really means here. Now, the first one was that he was a homosexual and therefore had no desire for women. I don't think that's necessarily what it means. Number two, he would not regard, regard the desire of women, meaning that the desire of the Jewish women to bring the Messiah into the world, which was seen as an honor to the Jews. Since the Antichrist claim will, is to be this Messiah, he will not regard the desire of the Hebrew women for the Messiah that has been for thousands of years in the past. So that's another concept that's came up. He'll not regard the deity of Christ that is greatly desired among the nations. It's talking about the desire of Christ itself. He will have no desire or be pleased with women since the, to desire woman. I thought about this, and I thought maybe this might be the application here. I don't know, you know, I am who I am. I don't know. There's a lot of better men than me <laughs> come up with interpretations. But it says, he will have no desire or be pleased with women since to desire a woman is to place something else as equal or greater than himself. I thought about that. I wouldn't doubt that that's the interpretation. See, to put himself underneath the weakness of a woman or to say, I need you, when he's trying to promote himself as God above anybody else that has ever exalted himself upon the earth before. He had no even desire for the de desire of women. You know? Anyways, you pick. <laughs> let you, I'll let you think about that one. If you've got a different thought, let me know. Number five, he'll disregard any God. Um, this is kind of like, um, you know, Nebuchadnezzar when he played the music and he wanted everybody to bow down to his idol that day. You know, even though they had different gods, he said, no, you're going to bow down to my idol when you hear the music play. And that, of course, is a precursor to the Antichrist and the thing in Daniel there that showed us. He'll oppose Judaism, Christianity, will not regard the private conscience of men to worship God in their own hearts but he'll seek to usurp that worship right from our own hearts. Think about that. I was really disturbed, you know, in the beginning of this whole COVID thing, how that they said you can have an exemption, but it won't, you cannot use the aspect of conscience. And I thought, <laughs> like, that is corrupt. If you're not going to use conscience, then what are you using? What else is there? In fact, that's why it was put in the Constitution or these human, uh, the Charter of Rights in the first place is to guarantee the freedom of religion, the freedom of worship, and the freedom to choose based upon your relationship with a God that you believe in. Now, some people believe that they can't have a blood transfusion because their God says no. 
<clears throat> no, I don't believe that, but I really respect the ability of anybody to believe what they want to believe about it. But to pull that conscience argument right from the start showed me that the devil is behind this yeah. from start number one, from day one. You try to get an exemption without your conscience involved. <laughs> you know, that's why nobody was getting them. No, nobody seemed to ask the question as to, well, why would I remove the conscience from this equation? Or why doesn't that count anymore? Or why did you think that that is the thing that you cannot use? <laughs> you know? And I, I tell you, I've been thinking a lot about this. And it needs to be taught. It needs to be brought out there. And people need to understand the aspect of the conscience in relation to your choices. You know? I always believe that. Here, I never gave people a hard time if they wanted to get vaccinated or didn't. I believe very much <clears throat> if a person is walking with God and they feel that they needed to take the vaccination, that God would, even if it was a total poison, and God would lead them that way, God would protect them in that. Yeah. But I also believe that, that if, a, if God speaks to your heart and says, no, you shouldn't take it, God knows something about you that probably you don't even know. That you may have a, there's been a lot of uh, things happening these days about the responses to this vaccination. People have died and heart attacks. And maybe the Lord knows something about you that everybody doesn't know. Now, I'd rather have the Lord tell me not to do it than me to have a heart attack, <laughs> you know? <laughs> and so there, there's a reason why we, we, we exalt our relationship with God and we need to have a conscience with God for that particular purpose. And that is the argument. And any letter I ever wrote for an exemption had that argument. And if you didn't like the conscience part, I'm sorry, that is the word of God. That is this truth, that is religion at its core nature, you know? We just have to convince them of that because most people weren't even asking the question. They didn't even care about why they weren't accepting that. Anyways, letter D. The Antichrist will honor the God of forces. thought this was interesting. The word forces means a refuge or a fortress or a shelter. It signifies a stronghold. So there's one thing that the Antichrist is going to honor here. He's not going to honor any other God but he is going to honor the strongholds of the earth. I thought about that, and, you know, with some of the, uh, the egos of some of these rulers we have there, you know, they don't really, you know, give a lick about people. They'll abort the babies and kill anybody that's not born yet and say, oh, that doesn't mean anything. You can call them and say, hey, you know, uh, why don't you help me? I need some health care. Well, we do have this program available. It's called euthanasia. This one lady was telling them how she was a vet and how she couldn't climb up her stairs. She had to actually hit, she didn't have what she needed to actually get up and down the stairs. Well, the government said, well, we really don't have anything to help you with that, but we do have a program and we can help you with assisted suicide. <laughs> she was just totally abhorred with this thought, but that was from our government. Somebody from our government gave her that option. And that's happening more and more and more. No regard for life. I mean, don't tell me you're concerned about someone dying from COVID or one person is too much. I'm sorry, I've heard that and it just makes me sick when these leaders talk about that because they're killing millions of babies every single day. They don't care about that. They're spending billions of dollars killing babies in Africa, killing babies all over the world, killing old people, killing sick people. They don't care about that one person dying of COVID. That's not what they care about. But they do honor the God of forces. 
oh, let's just get together in our EU meeting here. Let's just get together with our other big, big boys in the big boy meeting. <laughs> That's important. That's when we'll spend the $6,000 for the, the hotel rooms and so forth and get all the different, you know, spend all the money. Yeah, the veterans are saying, could you please help me? I don't have any health care. We don't have any money for you. But you're spending $6,000 a night on what? So you can get drunk with your cabinet? Now, I don't mean to get political here, but I'm getting to a point. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's not about caring. It's a God of forces. They care about... They care about the world and the strongholds and the political power and the different things. And that's how the Antichrist is going to operate. And it's already in play here in this world. He will promote Satan worship. He will seek his own ambitions. It says, but in his estate shall he honor the God of forces. And a God whom his fathers knew not shall he honor with gold and silver, with precious stones and pleasant things. And so all this money, he's got all this money, but it's all going to something that nobody knows about. That nobody has ever had in their life before, but you're spending all this money towards this direction. Does it sound familiar? <laughs> Most of the world's nations will follow the Antichrist in his Satan worship. Daniel eleven thirty nine says, Thus shall he do in the most strongholds with a strange God, whom he shall acknowledge and increase with glory, and he shall cause them to rule over many and shall divide the land for gain. That means those that will follow will increase in glory. Let it be those that will follow will rule over the rich people or will rule over the people. That means those that will follow his strange God and set up that God in their strongholds, he says, I will make it so that you will rule over people with me and I will increase your glory. Those that will follow will become rich through real estate. They're going to sell the land and divide it up and say, here, you can make this money and that money. Because you're following my way. Because my strange God is in your stronghold. Wow. I tell you. That make you sick. Well, what do we got here? Number two. The wars of the tribulation. Let it read, the kings of the south and north will make war with Antichrist in Israel. And we read that verse already, how the time of the end shall the king of the south push at him and the king of the north shall come against him like a whirlwind. So it's interesting, even though the Antichrist has so much power, the, the nations are still not submitting. Because people don't submit. <laughs> Amen. I don't care. I don't care who's in charge. They're just a bunch of rebels. They always will be. And even though the Antichrist is ruling, ultimately not everybody's going to obey him. We hear in, number one, there will be a coming war against Israel mentioned in Psalm 83. These are actually Arabic nations that it's talking about. It hasn't been fulfilled yet. If you read Psalm 83, it gives you a list of nations. They will not submit to the Antichrist rule. Number two, there will be a war of Gog and Magog during the first half of the tribulation. King of the south, king of the north. This battle will end quickly. It's going to happen within the first half of the tribulation time. I'll show you this chart that I have here. I made it a while ago. Uh, you see the church age. You see the five wars, the five major wars that we're talking about in, in prophecy. We have the destruction of Jerusalem in 70 AD. That's a major point that we need to consider. Uh, if we're talking prophecy, you have the war of Psalm 83, probably happening just before he takes power, before he signs a covenant with Israel. 
that may be what gives him the, the, the leeway or the, the clout to sign this covenant that he came in and helped, helped them in that. Number three, Gog and Magog, is Ezekiel 38 and 39, happened through the first three and a half years. And then the fourth war will be the Armageddon, which will happen at the end of the tribulation. And then the fifth war is the final rebellion at the end of the millennial kingdom, when they'll one final push against the Lord Jesus Christ after the thousand-year reign of Christ. And so, um, see what I got. Letter B, the Antichrist will feel threatened by reports from the east and the north, setting the stage for Armageddon. Armageddon means the mountain of Megiddo. I'll show you a couple of pictures. You hope it turned out okay. This is actually my tour group that was in uh, Israel. And you can see the tour leader there pointing out, and he's pointing out to the valley of Megiddo. So that there is the battlefield where this is going to take place, where all the nations will come in the battle of the Armageddon. And it's right on the, the mountain of Megiddo where the city of Megiddo actually existed. And we were in those archaeological digs there. It's a part of it there. Just amazing. This is a panoramic shot I tried. I don't know how it's going to turn out here. It looks a little bit off, but that, I wanted to get the whole kind of scope of the valley there. And so also the one of the mountains that um, are on the other side of this is the mountain of Megiddo, but there's also the mountain, uh, Mount Carmel is on the other side. And that's where Elijah was and the fire came down and consumed the, the altar and the sacrifices. And that's looking at it from the other side. And so it's just an amazing thing to take this stuff in when you're there, knowing that this is going to be the place where Armageddon will take place and the place where God will bring those wicked once he comes again. The Bible says that Jesus Christ is going to, is going to put his sickle into the earth and he'll harvest. And that first harvest is the harvest of the wicked. And that's where in Matthew it talks about there's two in the field and they'll both be in the field and one will be taken. The one that's taken isn't the rapture. It's not talking about the rapture. In fact, the, the, the scripture, the context shows that very clearly because it talks about the great tribulation just verses before that and it talks about the days of Noah. And actually that first harvest of that sickle is actually the wicked being pulled up by God and brought to the valley where they'll all be destroyed. And the Bible says the blood will be to the bridle of the horse, the horse's bridle. That's how the, the blood will be. And so the Antichrist and his army will conquer many, but not all countries. And it says that right there, that he shall enter into the country, shall overflow and pass over. He'll enter in also into the glorious land, Israel, and many countries shall be overthrown, but these shall escape out of his hand. Edom, Moab, chief of the children of Ammon. So as much time as he's got, he doesn't have enough time to actually take over the whole world. And that's why when you look at um, the judgment of the nations that's going to take place when Jesus Christ comes again, there's going to be nations that will be a part of the sheep and the goats. The judgment of the nations is where God's going to judge them based upon how they treated his people Israel. All the, the, uh, the covenants of Israel will come to fruition in that moment where it says, blessed are they that bless you and cursed are they that curse you. And in that moment, the Lord is going to complete all those covenants. All the covenants of Israel will be completed in the moment that Jesus Christ puts his foot upon this earth at his second coming. It's an amazing thing. It really is. Um, 
Let's see, the Antichrist will control much of the world's wealth. You see that in verse 43. He shall have power of the treasures of gold and of silver over the precious things of Egypt and the Libyans and the Ethiopians shall be at his steps. Number three, three deceiving spirits will come out of the mouth of Satan to bring the kings of the earth to Armageddon. Revelation 16 talks about the unclean spirits like frogs came out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet. For they are the spirits of devils working miracles which go forth unto the kings of the earth and the whole world to gather them to the battle of that great day of God Almighty. And let us see, the Antichrist will meet his end on the battlefield of Armageddon being destroyed by Jesus Christ. The Bible says, And then shall the wicked be revealed whom the Lord shall consume with the spirit of his mouth and shall destroy with the brightness of his coming. So when he comes again, the Antichrist will be destroyed on that battlefield of Armageddon. Um, Revelation 19, I'll read this, will be done. Verse 11, it says, I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, and he that sat upon him was called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. His eyes were as flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns, And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies were in heaven, followed uh, followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. That's you, if if you're born again. And out of his mouth goeth a sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations. And he shall rule them with a rod of iron. He shall treadeth this winepress of the fierceness and wrath of Almighty God. Wow. I'm glad I'm following him, aren't you? (laughs) Aren't you glad you're on that white horse behind him and not in that valley under the deception of of satanic spirits and trying to take on God and say, I'm going to challenge God. I'm going to tell God who's, who's the boss around here. I'm sorry. Indignation is going to come to you. Amen. We're, we're in the right place when we're the children of God. You look on the, uh, on the news today, you see what's going on, you see these people screaming. I saw this one uh, uh, news thing about this abortion thing, and people are trying to, get, they try to go into these things, get questions, and try to get them to tell them what they're you know, protesting. And this one woman, all she did is just scream and scream and scream. And I thought, woman, what is wrong with your head? What is wrong with you? And all I could think of that she's probably one of those that the Antichrist would come. He'd say, take this number. She'd be the first one in line, screaming for the killing of babies. That's the world we live in today. The Bible says these people that are going to be taking the number of the beast, the Bible says their names are blotted out from the foundation of the world out of the book of life. We got people on this planet right now that will never be saved. They will never be born again. They will never even have an opportunity to because the Lord knew that they would never receive Christ. They're so vile and so wicked. He says, I'm not going to waste a breath upon them. They're already blotted out by God's foreknowledge. You know, my name's written in the book of life. We are on the good side, folks. (laughs) You got to just praise God for that. But we are living in a time, it's like no other time. We are at the time of the end, and we need to prepare our hearts. And I think if there's a time for that, we need personal revival. We need to surrender ourselves. Now is that time, because Jesus Christ will return. He is coming again. And Satan's setting up his, his political structure. He is going to take over this world. 
He will. (laughs) I'm glad the Lord is going to pull me out of here. If you're not saved here tonight, please get saved. Because if if you're not saved when Jesus Christ blows that trumpet, you will stay here during that terrible time. And who knows, with all the chances you've got, the Lord may give you a strong delusion that you believe the lie. So if you're here today, all I'm saying is this. <laughs> if there's enough of you that brought you to this place tonight and you're not saved, I think perhaps the Lord has got a plan for you to be saved. Amen. And make sure you are. Let's bow our heads. Thinking of those also on the live stream that may be listening I encourage those that are wherever you are over this globe. We've had several countries listen to us. I just want to encourage you to get born again, to receive Christ as your Savior by faith. Trust him. He is good. He is everything that you need to be. He is everything. He's the example. He is your salvation. He loves you and he gave his life for you. He created you. And he created you for a purpose. You'll never fulfill that if you don't receive him as your savior. You have to understand that you are lost. And you're, you need to be born again. There's a condemnation resting upon you. You would be a part of that indignation if you don't receive the free gift of eternal life. For by grace are you saved through faith and that not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. It's a free gift that he has for everybody tonight. If you have not received that, I don't care where you are, if you're here locally, or maybe you're somewhere in in a different part of this world, maybe in the UK, maybe you're in Africa, wherever you are, if you're listening, uh, however it may be, I'm just asking you to, in your heart, turn to Christ in faith. Trust him. He is the perfect son of God that gave his life for you and admit your guilt before him and admit that he is the only way that you will be saved. Ask him for forgiveness and cleansing and salvation and he'll put his spirit in your heart and you'll be sanctified forever, saved. And you'll be with him on that white horse following behind not in that battlefield with the blood to the horse's bridle. I encourage you to follow Christ. That's the best place to be. Christian, I don't know where you are. I don't know how you are in this whole, this whole self-magnifying, you know, self-exalting, doing your will or God's will. I'm going to encourage you just to make a decision to do God's will for your life. And that means you're spending time in his word and you're seeking his direction for you. Every decision you make is run through Bible principle. That's what it means to seek the will of God. You're pulling yourself right out of the equation and you're making it all about not my will.